0: I'm Kevin McDermott and this is the Faculty Profile Podcast. My guest today is Dario Del Pupo, professor of language and culture studies. 2016 will mark Dario's 30th year as a faculty member at Trinity College. Considering his abounding energy and enthusiasm in life and in the classroom, you'd be forgiven surprise at the length of his tenure. His course offerings cover a wide range of topics from his instruction of all levels of Italian language to Dante's divine comedy, Italian cinema, food in italian history society and art as well as two first year seminar courses he's led the first food fitness and the journey to self discovery and his most recent offering cycling sustainability and the city of hartford we'll cover some of those topics and much more as i speak with professor dario del pupo on this episode of the faculty profile podcast welcome to the show dario and thank you
1: for being here Thank you so much, Kevin. I'm pleased to do this.
0: Great. Um, let's start kind of at the beginning, and uh, I, I want to ask you about your first impulses towards teaching. Like when, when did you see um, and begin to see teaching as your professional calling?
1: Wow, that's an excellent question because that takes me so far back. When I was a graduate student, I'd, uh, well, when I was an undergraduate, I was a psychology major. Mm-hmm uh and then I switched my final semester uh after having spent my junior year abroad in Italy and so I found I began reading literature more intensely and I found books more interesting than people characters and stories sometimes more real than than reality than the people that I would meet, and I always wanted to understand the springs of action why people do things why the characters what makes them behave um and then I saw I went to graduate school, mm-hmm. but I never expected to end up where I am today. That I never foresaw that I'd be an academic. Uh, I did it thinking, let me follow this path for a while and see where it takes me. Yeah. And that's where I guess I, I had some excellent mentors, and I realized that uh, you know learning was much more about learning than teaching. And so I think that you know uh, I became inspired by them, and and gradually over these many years. I've had wonderful colleagues and mentors here at Trinity and some excellent students, of course, uh, over the years. And so you, you just learn to realize, w- you see on a daily basis what a positive effect you can exercise mm-hmm. on people.
0: Yeah. Going back to your grad program, that was at University of Connecticut. Right. And— Italian literature? Is yeah, that right? Italian. It was an yeah. Italian
1: major. Italian okay. major, and then the grad program was a PhD in Italian yeah. literature. So, as,
0: a, as an undergrad, this is interesting. I, I didn't know this about your um, your your background. Psychology major. Did you right. want to practice psychology, or did you have an idea there? Yeah,
1: okay. you know, it's uh, I, if I recall correctly, because we're going back, you know, to the uh, late '70s, so you know, things get a little foggy. Um, <laughs> I really wanted to work more as a kind of social, psych- as a psychologist in the field. Okay. You know, helping people, yeah. basically. Maybe even, I didn't think of it as social work, but I think I was, not, certainly not the academic route, you yeah. know, sort of helping people. Yeah.
0: In our previous conversations, I can see that angle, and it makes, it makes sense, <laughs> but I, I didn't know that about your background. Where, where uh, did you grow up? What, like high school and, and, and growing up, where, where are you coming from? Yeah, I grew
1: up uh, pretty much in this area. Okay. Uh, I'm originally from New York. I came to uh, Hartford in 66, and I actually, between 66 and 68, when I lived down on Webster Street, I actually played on Trinity's Fields as a kid, you okay. know, playing pick-up, you know, touch football, things yeah. like that. That was um, south end of Hartford? Yeah, Webster we're Street, just Webster Street is just right near the college. It's okay. right at the beginning of Washington Street and yeah. it intersects there.
0: What was Hartford like? Paint us a little
1: picture of what. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, like and, this is really. In those days. It, it, it was amazing. First of all, uh, Hartford, even in the. Well, up until the early 70s when the West Farms Mall opened and it signaled the sort of beginning, at least of my awareness, of mall culture, downtown Hartford was a thriving place. Yeah. yeah. Department stores, G. Fox, E. J. Corvette, Sage Allen but all these little places and, and a couple of sports shops, Herbs, which is in West Hartford, they had yeah. a really small, cluttered place on I think it was Trumbull's first Asylum, then Trumbull. Uh Keene Sports Shop. This was before the Civic Center went up. Okay. Right? So downtown still. Yeah, has vibrancy. it was a diet so it was vibrancy. Still, yeah. It was It was, you know, I didn't go there often, quite frankly, but I would Mm -hmm. get there by bus. You know, and it was uh, an uh, an interesting sort of you had the sense of a city, a a city that even though it was mainly office workers, people lived there or they went there at other times. It was just bustling. And I remember West Harford by comparison you know, what LaSalle Road and Farmington Avenue was in West Hartford, Not And it was not yeah. very developed, not yeah. so she-she, not so boutique, you yeah. know? I mean, um, and so a lot of people. And also there was a, a, an important difference was in Harford, the insurance companies did business differently. You hmm. still have the major insurance companies, but there were armies of underwriters, okay. and they went to work every day because there wasn't a the home computer and things like that. Yeah. And, of course, uh, United Technologies and, the, you know, the, the sort of uh, industries related with, you know, the, uh, with the arms, you know, with mm-hmm. uh, defense and things like that. So Colt and things like that. It's yeah. so, so really a, a, a bustling place.
0: Yeah, and so those are your teenage years, roughly. Yeah, 16, late, late, late
1: uh, yeah, between, not to, I was not to eight to, yeah, that's uh, all right, I mean, late, late you Late know. 60s. Um, yeah, late 60s, early 70s. Yeah. And then West Farms opens, and. I think it's, a, I, th- okay. I want to say like around 1972, I could be yeah. wrong about, it. we could check it, but, you and know. And that helped kind of the
0: of Yeah, the well, exodus I mean, of the
1: exodus had actually begun in a way, I have a very partial view, because the exodus had begun, this is interesting that you asked this, because in, in the, first year senima- seminar on cycling sustainability in the city of Harford uh, we r- ride our bikes around Harford and so I get a chance to actually think about how Harford has changed mm-hmm. part of it had to do with something that occurred even before I got to Harford and that was um, sort of the way uh, the Part of it was prosperity, but people moving to the suburbs and highways being built to the suburbs, yeah, right? Yeah. So the nexus of 84 and 91 and the creation of Constitution Plaza and the raising of the east side of yeah. Hartford, which was a sort of tenement side of immigrants and things like that, and for kind those, of a diaspora. Yeah, you know.
0: sorry to interrupt, but for those unfamiliar um, who might be listening, 84 and 91, two major highways, 91 severed the city of Hartford from the river, the Connecticut River, which is um, border you know the city of Hartford borders the river, and eighty four right. kind of bisected just through the northern, just north of downtown, um, this the city and, and these two scars on the city that are just major right. So, now, And you
1: know. if you think about it, I mean step back like an anthropologist or a sociologist and look at it and you say two major things happened then. With the bisection of the city, you know, or whatever, uh, the crossing of 84 and 91, you basically detached people from the river. Mm-hmm. And, in fact, I remark on a bike ride with the students, I said, you know, we were down by the Charter Oak Landing. And I said, you know, uh, when I was a kid, I didn't even know this was here. Yeah. Like okay. the river, basically. I knew there was a river on a map, yeah. but it's not like I had access because 91 had always cut it. With the building of 84, an- so you're divorced from an important part of a natural landscape yeah right and an incredible resources geographic. you yeah. guys know sure. because you row on it yeah. right yeah. and yeah. the beauty of it all right the second thing that happens with 84 something uh, else happens and that is you get divorced from certain parts of the city yeah so the north end is created in yeah. a way I mean
0: upper Albany and right Blue you know Hills the sort of a, it, really was a, from the it was it was
1: yeah. uh, you right. know either intentional or unintentional but it helped Segregate. It sure. segregated the city, yeah. uh, racially, yeah. and you know that's just weird, you yeah. know. But that's what urban development does sometimes, right? Yeah, exactly. So,
0: so uh, University of Connecticut undergrad, grad
1: program in UConn, and then I st- spent several years in Italy studying. Yeah. yeah.
0: And so, what were the texts that you you mentioned earlier? Yeah. the The liter- literature that that really caught you caused a change in your academic pursuit. Like, what were what were some of the the, the pieces that really that really grabbed you and and moved you towards that Italian literature doctorate
1: path? So, maybe the single most important event was going abroad my junior year. I had this Italian background anyway, but I didn't really speak Italian and I studied it. And then I spent my uh, year abroad in Florence. Mm -hmm. And there uh, we took a course, uh, a couple of courses, at the University of Florence. And, of course, they do university different. You know, professor shows up, gives a lecture, uh, you take a few notes. Maybe you have a a class or two periodically with the assistant of the course who is not just like an undergraduate TA but like a Ph.D. candidate or even a professor himself. And then at the end of the course, you know, six, seven months later, you're doing an oral exam. So here I am doing an oral exam in Italian on uh, Italian writers, and the professor was very kind he gave me a very good grade and he understood that as american students we could not be at the level of our italian peers but we did all right and I remember talking quite passionately and being deeply interested in the novel that we had read and that he'd asked me to talk about. Because the way oral exams work is like this. It's, all right, so Kevin, you've read these books, so tell me about this. Yeah. There's no, you can't really no study prompts. for There's no there, prompt, yeah. no nothing. Go. And yeah. sometimes, you know, and it could be very well that he's silent throughout. Doesn't? It's not a conversation like this. He's silent throughout. Yeah. And then he might just you know, if you start to screw up royally, he just says you're dismissed and gives oh. you an F. You know, but it <laughs> didn't go that way. But anyway, I read some books that year, and uh, i uh, my senior year back at UConn, I'd been introduced to Dante, mm-hmm. and that obviously just you know blows you away. Yeah, you realize that there's everything in the universe in Dante, and uh, you know it's a, Dante's an ex- you know you can talk about the Middle Ages and and Italian literature and Europe at the time. But really, he's just a pretext to talk about the problems of us. Okay. You know, problems today are are the way we relate to so many different things. Yeah. You know, love, hate, sin, um, vice, uh, violence, uh, justice. You know, those kinds of things. He's obviously best known for Divine it.
0: Comedy. But right. That uh, were there other texts that he's uh, responsible for that really p- pushes? You know,
1: yeah, push I remember well. my first week in in Florence. The professor uh, had us read one of his sonnets which was about love, and mm-hmm. it was uh, very stylized, and um, it's kind of a, a, an unusual view of love, one that we might not identify with, but it intrigued me, uh, the perspective on love, but also the language that the author, that Dante uses, yeah. right? And w- how language could be so pregnant, and it could be a code, yeah. uh, and how it served to not only talk about love, and the phenomenology of love, what the author feels and so forth, but um, what love is, right? And love is a kind of salvation, and and you get that always in Dante. Uh, Whereas some of his fellow poets, like another great poet that I read almost at the same time, Cavalcanti, you know, love is torment, love is death. Mm -hmm. uh, The opposite, you know, a much more lay or anti-Christian or anti-spiritual but more materialist kind of perspective.
0: When you teach, um, I, I know you've taught Dante and Divine Comedy frequently at, at Trinity. What are some of the most important aspects that that students pull from from that text, and what do you um, help, or, or what do you what do you hope they glean from from that text specifically, Divine Comedy? Well, the
1: first order of business is most of what students know about Dante uh, is clearly shaped and colored by what they read in social media, popular, not popular press, but on television and mm-hmm. things. There's even a video game, right, about Dante where Dante has to go save Beatrice and stuff, and it's quite the opposite, right? So it distorts the text completely. So you have to disavow them of some of those things. Or Dan Brown, you know, that okay. kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but but what's really cool is, the first thing is that they read the entire work. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they embark on a journey that's what you tell them look you're reading they they know inferno they've never read purgatorio and they certainly haven't even touched paradiso or in some cases they know it's there but they don't haven't even broached it
0: so you have to go heaven purgatory and w- heaven. well we go purgatory
1: hell purgatory heaven we go okay. in order and yeah. so just as they are supposed to identify like you know with the author that is the narrator and the pilgrim they too go on this journey in a way. So you get them thinking about those kinds of things. And So at the end of the course, in three months, they can say, even if they may not have completely grasped and certainly not exhausted the topics, they are certainly um, uh, delighted to have read the entire work. So that's the first thing. Of course, the way you, you know, so how do you approach a text like that? You need all this wicked background uh, about medieval history and church and, you know, state and lay powers and things like that, the secular powers. And you need to have a really good background about the p- particulars of Florentine and Tuscan history and that kind of, you know, this stuff could be, it could be arduous mm-hmm. just doing that just to exceed have access to, to the have tax. have the background. Yeah. So what you do is you give the them tax. that a little bit through a couple of simple readings and discussion and try and pry it out. But in the end, it doesn't matter as much to me that they can recognize a black wealth from a white guelph and a Ghibelline, but rather, you know, what political civil war can do to a population mm-hmm. or what, um, you know, a kind of political system with the havoc it can wreak on a civilian life uh, and try and relate that to some experience that they might have by reading the press and things like that. So you start with the student's experience. You use the text as a way, as a mirror of the student's experience, which is kind of an unusual thing. And some of my colleagues, Dante scholars, might actually disagree with such of an approach because they think then they're not getting what Dante means and what Dante is saying. But that's always uh, an issue in any teaching. You have a body of knowledge. Do you want to convey that body of knowledge, right? But then what do the students really understand of that body of knowledge, 20%, 10%, 40%, 80%? Ultimately, you know, is it more important to uh, convey a distinct body of knowledge, or rather uh, give students the tools and the appreciation appreciation and motivation to try and learn as much as they can learn mm-hmm. of that body of knowledge. And I take that tack. So when I read Dante, it's not like, oh, we have to spend a class on Brunetto Latini or some other character, some important event. or uh, No, the important, let me see where the students want to go with this. Yeah. And of course, if I think they're completely overlooking something, well, that's where I step in and say, look, guys, we need to consider this, too. So it's really about working with the students, because otherwise, some students could never read the comedy, right? Because either they don't have the same educational, exact ex- educational background as someone who comes to the course having read, for example, some medieval literature or romance literature or has a sense of medieval history or something like that, yeah. you know?
0: Is there a, a, an easy explanation for why the one section of that, uh, of the, of the poem has been so... Um, popularized in in pop culture, the hell aspect right. of it, that well, purgatory it's and heaven. You, mu- you know, f- people who have a surface knowledge of it, like myself, might not even be aware that it is written in three parts or right. has three sections to it. Why is that? The is the hell well, the sexiest part. Of yeah, it, exactly. Yeah, it's okay. it's
1: violence well, and yeah. it's something people and Dante supposedly Dante is very mimetic, very realistic, so we can identify with it more easily especially with the violence Uh, but the difference as I tell students is when was the last time you saw a dead body on the street Dante used to see it quite often Hmm. when did you see someone hanging outside the municipal building or someone's being maimed punished that was common of course right or the sickness and violence it's much weird so I think there's an allure because it's not what they see but they can imagine and it's popularized that they they are more um, they are more readily able to identify not identify but to appreciate or to feel uh, emotionally titillated by you know the violence and things like that and also just the grand themes of justice what's right and wrong an eye for an eye a tooth for a tooth what's justice right mm-hmm. whereas purgatory once they read purgatory and it's clear that inferno still remains their favorite but. Uh, for some students purgatory becomes crucial because they see how it's more of a life story it's more germane to their own experience Mm -hmm. where there is redemption but you do pay deeply and heavily for your mistakes and paradise is hard to connect to but that's where it's almost like an acquired taste Mm -hmm. Uh, and interestingly I think the language of Dante in Paradiso even in English translations is much easier than in the Inferno The difference is, conceptually, it's far more challenging and more abstract. And so that's hard. But you try and get students at least to have an appreciation of how the three work together. That's the point.
0: Is the appreciation, uh, certainly, uh, obviously, but I'm interested of your take on how the appreciation and engagement with the text is different from when you read it in the Italian versus how students at at Trinity typically read it in the English. What is the what's lost, what's gained? Well,
1: first of all, there have (coughs) been well over a a hundred translations in English Mm -hmm. in English of Dante's Inferno and if you take partial translations probably you know that number increases so it's not a problem of student access to the text. Typically in a course like last semester I had several students four or five students whose Italian was good enough that in the middle of class I could say okay guys I'm gonna read this in Italian now and We would talk about the Italian text, and even the students, and we were talking English about the Italian text, and the students that had no access to the Italian text, they weren't students of Italian, because there's a mixed class of students who can only read the English text, some students who can struggle with the Italian text, and obviously can read the English. And what's cool about that is that even the students who don't speak Italian, don't know Italian, really thought that that was a cool part of the course, because they were getting some, they were getting, they thought, a kind of more authentic experience, Mm -hmm. And we would highlight passages in the text where we see that the translator is struggling to convey something that could mean something else, and we talk about that. And so, yeah, I mean, that figures heavily. I'll do things, for example, I'll thank God for the Internet, right? I can post uh, a manuscript online, and I'll read the Italian from a 14th or 15th century manuscript, depending which ones we want to look at. 14th, because they're closer to Dante's text. 15th, to see how at the reception of Dante is being perpetuated mm-hmm. in the 15th century, right? Hmm. So they get a flavor for a little bit at least. You yeah. Know?
0: Yeah. And that class is, it, what, what level class is that? Do you have a mix of- It's a of 300 the, level. 300
1: I, I, You level, know, yeah. uh, I don't mind having first year students in it, but only but if they're willing to do the travel, the tra- yeah. journey and the work. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and the technique that I use now is basically they post a 250 word essay, so basically a page, about three times a week. Okay. Uh, they're writing a lot so it's a challenge for a young person who might feel overwhelmed especially when you've got juniors and seniors mostly now yeah. the
0: last two years you have led first-year
1: seminar right courses yeah
0: um, can you can you just explain kind of in general what a first-year seminar course is right um, right
1: first-year first seminars first of all were implemented long before I came to Trinity I want to say sometime in the 60s and oh, my view of the first year seminar and has been is that it's a way to introduce students to interesting topics that we might not normally teach that are not our specialization so something I'd like to do that I can do almost at an introductory level without being a specialist necessarily so for my end it's kind of cool but for the student what it does it it's really an opportunity to be introduced to college life mm-hmm. and to academics and of course, we become the advisors of these students for the first two years until they pick a major.
0: Yep. So not only have that professor right. for that class, but me right. outside of the right. classroom. Right, right, <coughs>
1: and, and, uh, and there are other things. The college does want us to introduce, for example, get the students to do a lot of writing mm-hmm. and give them good feedback on the writing. Yeah. Um, we want students to participate, so they try and keep the numbers of seminar, uh, seminar students to, to a smallish number. Um, and so that everyone you can keep an eye on them basically you know you can work with them uh, more individually or at least in small groups as well as in the seminar yeah. environment.
0: And what's the typical size for the, for, for the course? Well uh, I mean roughly. 15 has
1: been the last few years I've had yeah. uh, one <coughs> year I had several more because they wanted to get in apparently the seminar is quite popular so it's yeah. sort of on uh, highly demand so uh, demanded so you know I mean if a student you know has really good reasons I would invite, but I'm actually trying to reduce the number because of the activities I want to do and how the course is evolving. So the food, fitness, and journey to self-discovery is exactly what it sounds like. We talk about food. We talk about fitness. To me, you cannot talk about food without fitness, Mm -hmm. right? The FDA, the Agricultural Department, the DEA deals with food and things like that. But to me, Del Pupo, you cannot think of food without movement, exercise because it's about calorie consumptions, it's about how we relate to the world, how we relate to nature, to ourselves, and that's food and exercise. And then the journey to self-discovery because we try and get students to think a little more critically and deeply about how they consume, uh, the challenges they face, uh, what people in the past have said. And we read really cool things, everything from like the primat- uh, the, the, the uh, uh, primatologist uh, Richard uh, Rangham, catching mm-hmm. fire, to essays, you know, obviously Thoreau, uh, to more modern uh, things, some scientific, some less scientific, right? Do and to the this, th- there's the, there's the we have a half credit uh, fitness course yeah. attached to it. So students who take it, not only take my course for credit, but they take a semester long fitness course with Wes. So Wes and I essentially co-teach this, and it's yeah. just, you know, they get a double whammy you know, so they're getting a lot of exposure to faculty, to coaches, to that kind of thing. Do you
0: thing. remember the genesis of that course? Like, what was? Yeah. were those just topics that you were Well, I mean, again,
1: in a way, I, I had discovered, you know, I was uh, an academic trying to make my way up the food chain, right? Yeah. So fighting for tenure, fighting for promotions and things like that. But when I turned 40, I, I don't know if it was a midlife crisis. We were in Italy on a grant year, and I towards the end of the grant year I said look I'd walk by this little gym which was in a basement and I said look I'm gonna do this damn it and I'm gonna do it for one month and if it works for one month I'm gonna sign up for a second month right? well I did it one month and I went berserk I mean I have a background like I like to cycle recreationally and that kind but I really loved it and that set me on a journey of fitness at 40 years old Hmm. right I'm 56 now so I've been doing it assiduously for fifty, for f- uh, 16 years. And so what's interesting to me is I learned then that it was really at, at 40 you could teach an old dog some new tricks and that we still develop. And so I became ever more conscious about the relationship between the physical environment and movement and f- physiology and working out and exercise my own health and the intellectual components that I had developed. Right? And uh, when it came time to teach a first year, who do I run into? but our good friend, Wes Ng. And Wes Ng. is head coach of women's rowing here. Wes apparently. is really a philosopher disguised as a coach. Correct. And, um, and so we hit it off famously. I, we would see each other in the gym, he'd run his fitness class, I would do my workouts, which at the time was approximately, sort of approximating CrossFit type of things. And so we talked, and I said, I'd like to teach this course, and I invited him, and he said, awesome, and so we've been at it. And it's like, yesterday we were talking, how we want to evolve. How we want to change the course, uh, yeah. you know that kind of.
0: And what, you know, as as a coach here, you know, I, I value tremendously the benefits of a robust physical life and how that complements um, the academic piece for students. How do you see it? You know, you you just have mentioned as a a balance to your academic progress and professional progress as an academic. Um, but what are the things that you take from? A workout in you know a a single workout as well as the kind of general journey to fitness and you know robust physical capacity how what do you take from that into the academic realm and intellectual realm
1: okay so let me take a half a step back and talk about students Um, because ultimately I'm here because there's a student body right I mean I'm here to do the best I can to to find creative ways to work with students and uh, i think that really i am uh, ever more uh, sort of i ever m- i believe ever more that my job is really to help students become better creators mm-hmm. to develop their creativity in in the spheres that i deal with all right um, and one of the things that i realize is that you know mensana incorpore sano healthy body, healthy mind. You know, an old Roman saying, gotten from the Greeks. We got everything from the Greeks, it seems. So what I'm hoping to do with this course is to use, it's a practical application of my intellectual and personal interests to students, uh, to getting them to engage in the way that I do and to model for them a lifestyle that, and, and a way of thinking that they can then use to bounce off depart from, Mm -hmm. imitate partially, but to get them to think in in like-minded ways, not to get them to think like me, but to get them to think about the kinds of issues that are important to me and to them that have to do with like a healthy body, healthy mind. And, you know, we know that college is weird because college in some ways is this, you know, blooming, bustling, you know, burgeoning youth that Is exploding with you know all sorts of like interests and so forth and yet many students it's easy to lead an unhealthy lifestyle sedentary and sedentary active and (laughs) inactive and and that kind of thing so we learn now uh, like in rowing if you start to row when you're a young person you get all that motor memory tech and you got good technique down then as you develop muscularly you know physiologically intellectually with experience That's so important. What happens if we do that now, as opposed to, let's say, kids get their careers as lawyers, doctors, or whatever, business people, and then they decide, well, they have to stay in shape. So they have to discover this at 40, 45, when they've, a lot of bad patterns have been put into place, right? I think it
0: it, it really strikes me, you know, powerfully from a process standpoint of, you know, on the on the, you know, temporally, whenever it occurs for someone to understand the process towards academic development or physical development, and that right. for your modeling and the students, their, you know, uh, their aping, but also their adaptation of right. whatever you're your modeling is, it's the process towards a physically um, rewarding and intellectually rewarding life. Two, you know, very early, very powerful influences for me. One was summer camp at the YMCA, Uh um, which is body, mind, spirit. And the second, my uh, Northfield Mount Hermon School, I went for two years. That was founded on the principle of the head, the heart, and the hand, where the entirety of the individual is developed. And I think from a a process standpoint, that's extremely interesting to me for the professor to guide and and help... um, help the students along their path towards those ends.
1: Right. I mean, and and there's so many dimensions to this. So, for example, you begin, I try and begin with very simple questions. Why is it so difficult in this age of ready access of food, relative prosperity, because our students, you know, usually have access to good food. Mm -hmm. Why is it so hard to eat well? you know and and so or you know there are more gyms per person in this country than probably anywhere in the world then how do you explain the general unhealthiness and I'm not just talking about people who are terribly overweight or obese or those those are other kinds of issues those have to do with political things but even from a personal standpoint you know why is it so damn difficult to the food question is
0: it education is it you know knowledge or motivation or what do you find amongst students that you know might not make the best most informed choices right
1: I think it's uh, well obviously you know there's this is no secret that uh, it's it's uh, it has to do with marketing hmm right uh, you know it's interesting to me that we say for example you know free market capitalism has been a boon and if people don't like something you can choose with your pocketbook but why is it that people don't choose with their pocketbook? Why do we continue to insist on eating mediocre food yep. in some cases, right? Or what we call dead food, you know? I mean, food what is it, not How do you define Well, that? I, just, I just really use this word for the first time because, you know, I mean, the ancient Romans believed that, like, when they ate consumed grain, they kept the grain whole. Yeah. And then they would separate, let's say, the chaff or the shell, the husk from the actual grain and process that, right? And the reason they did that was because they thought that the food, vegetables, which they preferred, legumes, grains, emmer, wheat, things like that, uh, were alive, right? They were alive, and only when you cooked them, they sort of died, and they were cooked by the sun. They looked at animal meat as decomposing the second it's killed, right? And so they had this sort of dichotomy of what was good to eat, what was virtuous, and so on and so forth, and and what's really cool is they also had a sense, a kind of animistic or spiritual sense of what food is, all right? So you take that, and you put it into us, and we consume just about anything, Mm -hmm. so it's like Michael Pollan says, when you go shopping, shop the peripheries, right, not the middle aisles. Well, if you think about it, most of the food that's in the middle aisles is dead food. It's not really food. It's highly processed yeah. stuff, right? Um, and so, in a sense, we continue to choose, even though we know it may not be as good for us, those kinds of things. So are we really voting with our pocketbooks? Yes, but why, if we know that they're not so good for us, why are we continuing to do that?
0: Yeah, it's deferring to convenience and you know, habitual behavior. Right, and so
1: uh, what what happens if I begin to ask you, Right, this conversation you begin to think. Well, it's habitual, it's convenience, it's this, and then you know you get people to think or to actually question because I'm not trying to. You know, this is not a a course about propaganda or something. Mm -hmm. Right, it's it's really trying to get people to think for themselves about the choices that they're making in this process. Right.
0: You know, I I think connecting food to fitness. It it, one aspect connects food to fuel and and food to the the wood that stokes the fire you know and and allows you to you know be active and energetic and you as an example in my intro um, you know alluded to your energy and enthusiasm which is uh, I pretty much without peers uh, I've, I've encountered but um, your your other um, first year seminar that you're currently teaching cycling sustainability in the city of Hartford you get into on the sustainable right. sustainability front how do you engage with, with topics in that in that realm of, of food and, and sustainability? All right. Well,
1: that's a course I teach with my college, colleague Johannes Eveline. And mm-hmm. Johannes is Dutch. And being Dutch, you know, he's uh, a very committed cyclist, right? Because we know cities like all over Holland, especially Amsterdam, are renowned for their cycling sure. culture. And not a cycling culture that's, you know, spandex. But... Urban cycling. His utilitarian, mom, I mean, it's. His, the, it's yeah, his yeah, mom is yeah. late 80s and she still rides bike. <laughs> and she goes to the, she up until recently, I believe, she was going to the supermarket with her bicycle know, to load yeah. up the, the bags and that kind of thing. And so there's a different culture. That's just a different mindset, right? So we had this course. So Johannes, you know, has this am- amazing background. Uh, we're really good friends and colleagues. And he's uh, one of the deepest, um, uh, most committed people people uh, trying to live a sustainable life that I've met, and he's an inspiration. So uh, part of it is m- my mentality, too. I like to think that uh, that I try and do my little part in terms of sustainability, uh, it's ju- but it's also just preference and habit. Things like at home, we keep our house at 58 degrees. It's down yeah. to 55 at night. Um, I wear a sweater. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a problem. Uh, we eat food. We don't throw it out. We don't eat bad food. We eat well, but we make sure we're conscious about it, what we spend on food. Mm-hmm. And it's not only about the money. It's about, like, do you value the stuff? Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's like trying to live your life to the fullest type of thing. That's what sustainability is for me. So we had this idea for a course. How do we combine cycling and sustainability? That's pretty easy, okay? Right? Cycling is a kind of self-sustaining activity. It's healthy. It's good for you, yada, yada, yada. But how do you do it with Harford? Mm-hmm. Right. Well, Harford could use more sustainability and could use more cycling. All right. So what we did was uh, the first few weeks introduce the general topic, then alternate between cycling, sustainability, and Harford, and then do go cycle through that again. No pun intended. Through those topics, and then have the students basically pull the strands of the entire course together for us. Yeah. All right. And that was wonderful because we would meet three times a week, but often on a Friday we would cancel our Friday class, to which they would have to devote themselves to a half-credit term project, which had to do with cycling or sustainability or something about Harford. And to give you a couple of examples, several students, three students, worked with the Trinity Community Garden. Mm -hmm. Three students did marvelous work with the West Harford Bicycle Advisory Committee, uh, trying to implement uh, bike share there. Three students worked on a local bike share here on campus trying to develop that and working with Bantam Bikes Bikes, and and Kathy Kilcoyne and so forth. And um, three students worked with Connecticut Bike Walk, which they had an article published in The Current, all right? So they would do this. Three students helped organize the Cranksgiving Alley Cat charity race where we go and collect food for one of the local uh, uh, shelters uh, and, and, uh, you know, food shelters. So we would sometimes cancel our Friday class so they could devote themselves to that. But then we would have a weekend bike ride. Mm -hmm. And those were awesome because the students, uh, first of all, got to know the city. And let me tell you, it's one thing to drive through a city, right, in your car with the windows closed, in a cage. And it's another thing to walk through a city and especially to ride through a city because you can perceive more of it because you're going faster.
0: I know that well, and I, I have you to thank for it after years of telling me to get on my bike in Hartford. And uh, what you see year, is, you have, see you yeah. see
1: the beauties of the city, yeah. you see things, and you see the city in a very different way. You go through it, as I said to some colleagues, you go through it in space and time, Yeah, and that's a nonsense sentence I just said, because it's clear, everything we do, we do in space and time, but You're so aware, phenomenologically, of the things going around you. Uh, You see people on the street, you wave, you say hi. I always told the students, always say hi. Even if you're not going to stop and have a conversation, just say hi. Amazing how people say hello to you. And if you're kind to drivers, they'll often be kind to you. And they were remarkable. The first, we had them write lots of posts, that is, these brief reflections, about 250 words. about these rides and about the readings and it was often we did this in preparation of the readings or classes and things like that but i remember one of the first posts was about their first bike ride in harford it was literally called first bike ride in harford Mm -hmm. and what was really cool about it was that the students couldn't believe how kind people on the streets were to them most of these people were of a very different color from our students and so for some students who some probably having a big suburban experience I don't want to be judgmental and stereotypical and generalized but it opened their eyes and they said it was great how people you know would give us right away at intersections mm-hmm. so and they saw the city and they remember that and for the next four years uh, you know they will have that had that experience and we want them to be able to continue it so we're cultivating that yeah in them some students for example would do cool things like this oh, Kevin. Uh, Stephen Craney would, you know, sort of after he'd seen how you can get to the riverfront, where there's the amphitheater, yeah, and Adrian's Landing. Andrian's Landing, beautiful. Area. He on a beautiful September day rode his bike down there and did some studying. Yeah, how many students do that, right? How many students use the city in that fashion? Another student went to West uh, Kingswood, Oxford, rode her bike to West Harford when she knew how to get there, when she saw a safe way to get there, uh, to watch her sister who was visiting. Uh, on an athletic team they had a game there and her sister was on the visiting team and so she met her sister there I mean that's just kind of cool you know And both
0: are very easy routes to take. Yeah. It's not a a difficult city to bike ride in. Yeah, we talk
1: about integrating the college, the life of the college, and we normally do that through things like internships, which are awesome, and experiences, community learning initiatives. But there are also these just simpler little ways to take students into the city. Ride your bike. Ride your bike. So I'm really excited about this Trinity Campus downtown thing. Yeah. Campus. They bought that building. Another easy bike ride. Right. And and I'm like thinking, telling the students, we've got some cities, let's you know create a safe bike route there yeah. we have already but we you know somehow begin to think how do you formalize and how can we be helpful and participatory in making that space a space that's more integrated into the city yeah yeah, yeah.
0: It, it, you know for me it was just overcoming some you know really unfounded issue kind of fear based but of, of not wanting to ride in the city and the second that I did it I had the same experience that the students had of um, polite, you know, interaction with cars, um, very pleasant interaction with other bikers and right. other pedestrians, um, and also ease of movement. Like right. it was easy to get to the boathouse in East Hartford. It was very easy to get to Main Street and to Constitution Plaza and to Adrian's Landing. And you know, kind of coming back to our one of our first conversations of your earlier days in Hartford. Um, Really taking advantage of some of the exciting things that are going on here right. um, of a city that is on the on the up, and um, I think people's engagement with it—such a simple thing as a bike—really makes it very valuable and beneficial. Okay,
1: so let's you know. play the nerds for a little while and intellectualize this just a little bit, because there's virtue in this, I think. Um, you know. Uh, Del Pupo does what Del Pupo wants. That's sort of, and we all want to be able to do that. So I try and fire my find. I try and follow my desire lines. Yeah. Whether it's on this campus, uh, or my route home, or wherever I want to go. And and for those who don't know, a desire line is a term often used in architecture, but also in urban um, urban development. Uh, let's say traffic engineering to watch how people move. Through an environment, so imagine, you know, do people stay on the paved path, or they do they cut across the field and make a, a path? Yeah, and so that's where you want to put the paths. mean, you know,
0: you see that in the snow all right. the time. You see it in where the snow. Where does the path develop right, in right. the snow? Yeah. Okay,
1: so yeah. imagine now, you've you've got constraints on you. You want to get from your home to your office in a fairly efficient time. So occasionally, you might want to do a roundabout ride, but. So, but you still want to follow your desire line. Mm-hmm. So what happens? You're in the city. There's traffic. You pop up on the sidewalk, which is illegal probably, but, and you get off it. And then you go around. You go here. You go through. You take a shortcut. You follow. You're being creative. You're sure. expressing who you are. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, as long as that expression is respectful of other pedestrians and commuters and things like that. Yeah. But you're still being creative. And that's just like the most awesome feeling, you know, and you do that, and the more you do that in all aspects of your life, whether it's teaching or learning or coaching or rowing or athletic or cooking, right, you just feel more fulfilled. Why wouldn't you want to live like that, you know? So So. it's
0: improvisation, it's problem solving, it's adaptability, creativity, all within riding your bike from one place to another. Yeah, 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 yeah,
1: yeah. you know, and, and so I see riding my bike as a sustainable act uh, but I also see it as an act of freedom. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think I've never feel so, I, I you know, if I'm going to go to New York City and I don't take pub because my wife and I and someone else will take a car, uh, that's all right, I understand you have to do that, right? Yeah. But I never feel so constrained as I am uh, by, let's say, vehicular traffic yeah. on a bike, you know? It's a whole different thing, man.
0: Uh, I com- yeah, I completely agree. Let's go for a bike ride. Yeah yeah yeah, and, yeah, 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 and yeah, yeah. let's explore the places that that Hartford does have to
1: offer, um right. which are, you know, so so many new the and exciting things. The wealth of Hartford is so understated. What's beautiful are the neighborhoods. Yeah. If you go up into Blue Hills, which is predominantly middle-class African American, it's a beautiful neighborhood. Mm-hmm. There's some really beautiful old buildings, but cool things to see. Um, Asylum you know, Hill, Asylum I mean, Hill, and I'm always amazed town. at how Hartford is a city of finance, a city in a sense because finance is somewhere way high up on the superstructure, on mm-hmm. the infrastructure, right? And sort of is therefore that so far removed as a as a as a as a business, yeah. as a as a career, as a profession or whatever from nature, yeah. right? And yet we have it right near us. The river is right there. Sure. You can get to the West Hartford Reservoir in sure. about a half, yeah. tw- half I'm a slow writer, but yeah, sure. 20 minutes. Yeah. You, know, uh, you Elizabeth can, Park. Oh, Keeney uh, Park. Keeney I took park. students, we took sure. students to Keeney Park, which is a huge park and yeah. it dwarfs all other parks. Yeah. It's fantastic. And it's like a forest in there, yeah. you know? I mean, we've, I took students, a group of about 20 students there. And they were just like in awe yeah uh, johannes and i did that yeah i don't know if you, uh, johannes and i had pre-written it and we had a good time and we figured the students would really like this yeah so, you, you yeah.
0: know riverside park and yep. the entire river network that our friends at riverfront recapture um joe marfuji and craig mergens uh the rowing coaches just a right. little shout out to chris hayes and and brian wendry have done incredible work making yeah. those parks accessible and making them beautiful and, um, you know, trails and fishing programs, boating programs that um, I think when Hartford figures out how to get more people to recognize the opportunity that is already there, um, it'll be that much better off um, as a as a community and as a city and, and the, the biking aspect you know f- again for me personally was a big part of that cuz you find those spaces you you explore right. that different street that you might not otherwise have gone down or that one as you say path of desire that you you know you might one criticism that i will have i get very intimidated biking on asylum avenue right or i would never even go near new britain Avenue right. on a bike. Right, so you know that you know a four-lane right. road where speeds of cars probably 45 to 50 miles per hour at some points on both of those roads um, are far less agreeable than Boulevard right. or Park, right. where all it took was me, f- you know, figuring that out, talking to you, talking to Johannes, and figuring out where it was uh, safe and really efficient for me to access the road so what
1: you know. happens you know we do we do things America's a funny place right we live in these wonderful homes f- sometimes far away from our jobs and we do that because we believe that that is you know their schools and things like that there are all sorts of interesting constraints and one of them is that that's the better life for us mm-hmm. um, I actually believe it should be the opposite that you know if you're spending all that time commuting as Tom Vanderbilt talks about in his book traffic right. it's, uh, it's very unhealthy uh, if you check out divorce rates of people, uh, you'll see how big of an impact, it, you know, like uh, commuting yeah. has. So, so the
0: average, I think, in that book, he says, is over an hour. Yeah, average. And it's like,
1: commute. all right. So yeah. what happens if you choose, and if you can to choose? Because I'm not saying this is this. The, the danger in our conversations is we sound holier than now. Sure. Uh, yeah. yeah. Sanctimonious, and we have all the answers. That's not the point. Point is to try and ask ourselves the kinds of questions as to what makes us happy and what can we do, right, to to perpetuate that, to, to you know, uh, increase your happiness. So for me, it was like, I've got to be able to commute by bike. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, there's no, because if otherwise I, 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 it's hard. Yeah. It's and just for many dismissing. years you lived
0: in the South End. I lived in right? the South End, yeah. it was a
1: no-brainer. Yeah. I mean, I could walk in, in deep snow. I never missed a class, you yeah. know. I mean, uh, it could be three feet of snow. It didn't matter. I was there, you know. Um, But, you know, now that I live about four miles, that's still a very manageable kind of ride. And, in fact, it's fun. It's clearing your head, that kind of thing. But it's just beautiful. Yeah. I've always thought, for example, how I would map, how I I, I might try this, mapping my environment. For example, on my way, map literally, because mapping is an interesting conceptual, like all the interesting trees Mm -hmm. or all the beautiful houses, which houses I find particularly beautiful and why. Yeah. In other words, just asking this question means I'm trying to engage with the everyday like an anthropologist. How do you make the everyday look, you know, looking at the everyday as if you had a lens, a distance lens? Not because it makes you that more distant, but it gets you to know the everyday better. And so that's the kind of thing cycling or walking or, you know, engaging with your environment can be. And can do.
0: I think for Trinity students, uh, you know, hopefully everybody is aware of Bantam bikes that right. Kathy Kilcoin has. Um, and we're going to expand that. Great. Yeah. Uh, that's wonderful. The yeah. bike share program on campus that, you know, there is access to bikes if you don't have one. Um, the SGA was was pivotal in that in that effort to acquire some bikes and. Um, for their upkeep. Joe Barber and Community Services has right. been really involved in it as well, and you and Johannes. Yeah, Joe Barber's been, that.
1: Joe Barber and, and the people that have helped him over the years, Ken Kroeski and uh, Chris Brown, have been truly, you know, real sort of beacons in this. So sure. ha- kudos to, to Joe and all his good efforts and in, in the Community service Office. Community Get out relations. there, see the city of Hartford. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely.
0: Contact Professor Del Pupo if you have any yeah, questions. Yeah,
1: well, we can lend you a bike. My bike is, my office has got six bicycles in it. <laughs> Sorry. Right? Yeah. It's like I got this little <laughs> round and bicycle. So, yeah. yeah.
0: In, in addition to uh, cycling, um, one of the um, physical uh, fitness exercises that you excelled at and, and really devoted yourself to was Olympic lifting. Right. Um, what about Olympic lifting? caught you. So, like, what so was let's explain
1: what Olympic weightlifting is first. Olympic weightlifting consists of two lifts, uh, call them full body lifts. One is a snatch, which is you grab the barbell uh, near the collars, near the ends of the barbell, and in one movement you bring it over your head. Another one is called a clean and jerk, and uh, where you bring it up to your shoulders stand up with the bar, and then pop it over your head, jerk it over your head, all right? There are two lifts that are competed, uh, two competition lifts of the Olympics, and that's why they're called the Olympics. It's distinguished from powerlifting, which is basically bench press, deadlift, squatting, and other kinds of liftings and things like that, right? Mm -hmm. Other kinds of exercise. Uh, Olympic weightlifting is a real challenge, especially for an old guy like me, because it's uh, all about speed, strength, power, uh, but also incredible technique. And uh, I, th- I think of it more as an art form. Yeah. Uh, and I'll try and give a parallel to something as simple as rowing. You sit in a boat, and let's say you're sweeping or you're you're erging. Wes and I had this conversation. made this point. You're erging. There are a million strokes, that different ways you can take your stroke, even on an erg, right? Angle, subtle angle changes, all these things. Well, when you're Olympic weightlifting, any subtle changes have enormous repercussions on the final outcome and so because and of the complexity because of
0: the complexity of the
1: movement, of the yeah. of the movement. Yeah. it looks simple but it's really not sure. so for example you know you're trying to lift your body weight and more over your head in one or two movements and that can be demanding yeah. uh, but what the virtue of it is that it's a full body lift I love the efficiency of it yeah. because it's all full body yeah. y- you know um, and it's really good cardiovascular work, depending on how you then, you know, sets and reps, intensity, weight versus number of repetitions and sets and how often you do it. Uh, it's enormously demanding, and uh, it takes a lifetime to learn. Yeah. And that's why I'm doing it. That's because funny. maybe when I'm 75 or 80, I'll be good at it. Yeah. Maybe won't lift as much as I can today, but I'll be better at it. Mm-hmm. And on this... There's a, a, we hold this weightlifting competition. I help organizing it. I'm the vice president of Connecticut uh, uh, Weightlifting Club. Okay. And uh, there's a, we have an annual meet now thanks to the good graces of Mike Renwick and the team over at the Athletic Center. And we hold a meet in November. And there you will see children, uh, young men and women uh, and some nationally ranked athletes, and some old guys go mm-hmm. out there. And There was one guy this year who was 75 years old. He weighed, you know, 240 pounds, so he's kind of heavy. Had a big pop belly, actually. And he lifted pretty – he didn't lift close to his body weight, but he lifted the weight. Uh, uh, he did a snatch, I think it was about 150 pounds, and then a clean and jerk, which was even much more. But the beauty with which he did it. at 75 years old he was in a squat we say ATG I won't say it for the podcast but go figure it out something (laughs) to ground Um, and it was just beautiful to watch this man and I was stunned and I talked to him afterwards and we talked about how he trains and and even his training process you know this 75 year old guy still training regularly to compete it's just awesome it's beautiful beautiful But yes, but your question was another, I think. So how do we?
0: Uh, no, I think uh, about Olympic lifting, and I yeah I, I yeah have, have, having seen you compete, having seen you win uh, your age oh, yeah. group at, at the uh, and, and weight class at that meet. Um, it, it is I, the the term you used of art form um, for such a um, simple movement: lift this weight from the ground over your head. But the the um, the. Gathering of resources to, in order to do that, both um, biomechanically, from a neuromuscular perspective, the skeletal muscle, the intellectual muscle, uh, it is a, it's a beautiful thing to watch, and I, I don't, um, uh, it, I just have an appreciation for the um, the Olympic lifts and and you doing them.
1: Uh, yeah, and I think one of the challenges, you know, I we were talking about this before because of. Your experience and my experience with CrossFit, a lot of really good lifters are coming out of CrossFit because they've got just the basic athletic ability now. Mm-hmm. And then they learn Olympic lift, and they want to do that. Yeah. But of course, it's very different, the Olympic lifting that they do versus the kind of use of the Olympic lifts in CrossFit. So CrossFit will, as you know, do you know 30 power snatches as fast as you can go well clearly your technique will deteriorate after X number depending on the weight and your ability uh, whereas Olympic lifting is you're always trying to maximize the weight. Single rep. Right? Single rep for, you know, for, for a for competition. Completion. But, yeah. you know, we do when we work out, we do doubles, triples, sometimes yeah. sets of five, rarely sets of five yeah. and complicated lifts. But, so there are those challenges, and it's one reason why you incorporate it in, in uh, like football coaches like to incorporate power snatches, power cleans, and so forth, is because of the explosiveness. Speed, yeah. Speed yeah. and explosiveness, right, in athleticism. Right? But I think it's actually, they've done studies, and because I'm an old guy, I like to read about this. I'm always fascinated by like how the time, he's not that old, by the way, Tom Brady, how he works out. Mm-hmm. Mariano Rivera, how he works How this old guy I met works out. I'm yeah. intrigued by that because it's right. about sort of the process again and how you have to adapt to, let's say, some challenges you might have physiologically because of age, because of one thing or the other, your job, the stresses. Uh, that's and and the, journey. that's yeah. the journey. That's yeah. the journey. That's crucial. Yeah. I, that's what I want to teach young people. Yeah. It's the
0: situation yeah. in life as well. You're yeah. dealing specifically with college students who have so many demands on their time and right. the unique um, demands of living on a college campus versus a younger adult who has a you know maybe a family versus a 75-year-old individual, all dealing with different conditions, different stations in life, and yet trying to figure out how to engage in the process to be healthy, to be intellectually and physically stimulated. Right, That's and
1: to and to be very clear, it's not that you know uh, I want people to be Olympic weightlifters. That you know you can't be a good person if you don't do this. Not yeah. at all. This is how I'm still on my journey to discovering who I am, whatever yeah. that is, using this as my, a tool or a window, just yeah. as Dante is for me or my uh, intellectual endeavors. But uh, y- what you really is crucial is you want students to begin doing that as soon as possible. Yeah. Because then they will make the most of their four years at Trinity. Yeah. And that's what I want them to do. Uh, and that's why I love teaching first year seminars, and why I do one essentially every year now. Yeah. You know.
0: Another feature of um, Trinity, the student experience, and the um, myriad duties of, of professors Um, is a program that the athletics department has with faculty liaisons, which you've served as a faculty liaison for my team, the men's rowing team, as well as um, the connection with Wesley and the women's rowing team. Talk a little bit about that program, which I I think is, um, in my opinion, wonderful. We're so fortunate to have you as our liaison, but how do you how do you define that role, and, and what value do you see in it? You know,
1: when I go to the regattas in the spring, and um, uh, I meet parents, and they find out who I am, or I tell them, I introduce myself, they ask, "So, what is it that you do?" And I'm still sort of asking myself that question. It's not a pre-sort of defined. There is, it isn't a job description. It's what you make of it, mm-hmm. and I suppose that some uh, make of it something different than what I've made of it. Uh, Essentially what I consider myself a faculty advisor to the men and women's rowing teams here. And what that means to me is uh, that if, for example, uh, uh, students are having challenges or difficulties academically, uh, they want to talk to me, I am available, I am another resource. They have advisors and they have their fellow peers often and their teachers, some teachers that they really are close to. But I you know, let them know that I'm available to do that. Uh, I try and engage them. You know I mean, when I see them, I say, "How is your semester going?" Mm-hmm. And if I sense that there's you know the eyes are darting away, I get a sense that there could be a challenge. Um, I hope that the coaches, and they do tell me when a student is having a particular kind of, which may not only be related to academics. Uh, and so we try and, and sort of find the right resources on campus to help this student. Mm-hmm. So it's really, and sometimes just be part of the team, you know. I mean that kind of thing. For the for the, the, I mean, some of my highlights, uh, you know, have been, you know, working out with the women's uh, crew team, at seven o'clock in the morning, twice a week, and doing the lifts with them. And Mm -hmm. you know, they asked me, so how do you do this? And I say, well, I guess so. We got the coaches over. Let's ask them, you know. Or but this is the way I think you can do it, you know, and that kind of thing. And one of the nicest thing was. few years back, a couple of years ago, when we worked with the uh, pre-run-up to the, um, Henley the Henley trip, yeah, yeah. Uh, where I worked with the athletes for about two weeks. And that was awesome. That was just a lot of fun. It was a way to meet the, to know the guys a little better. Yeah. Yeah. And and so when they see me on campus, it's like, you know, hi, Professor Del Pupa, hi, Dario, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. And and I you know them a little better. Yeah. I had lunch with, I didn't have actual lunch, but I sat down with Mark Kameneki and, And uh, a couple of other guys uh, for them to have you as an advisor,
0: um, you know, as a supplementary advisor. um, But you know that connection, as you mentioned, of really getting to know the team and allowing them to have another resource to help them navigate whatever waters they may encounter. You know, during their experience as a student athlete, Um, there are so many teams in the athletics department. Who enjoy that relationship with their liaison? Who is such a great right? Christoph Geis is
1: like an amazing person Randy in this. Lee, Randy uh, yeah, Lee, so I mean, they're historic sure. figures. Sure. You know, people that. I don't know when yeah. the program was instituted. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't doubt that my good my good colleague uh, in philosophy, Drew Highland, had a hand in it yeah. years ago
0: with Robin Shepard.
1: Right with yeah, Robin years Shepard, years, right? Yeah. yeah. So, but it's a it's an important it's it's an important. I think it's it's helpful. Is sure. what it does absolutely. Yeah.
0: Well, Daria, we have covered tremendous amount of ground. we got to have you back just so we can talk about Hartford for a lot longer. It yeah, was, uh, sure. It really sure. great. Good places to eat. <laughs> yeah. But my thanks to Professor Del Pupo for speaking with me, to Eben in the booth, and the mill for the recording space. Um, episodes of the Faculty Profile can be found on the Trinity College SoundCloud page. Go to soundcloud.com and search Trinity College. And the Faculty Profile is on Twitter, at Faculty Profile. You can link to old episodes, leave comments, and suggest future guests for the show. Hope you enjoyed the conversation, and check back soon for more episodes of the Faculty Profile podcast. William Eli McDormand is returning with Daddy McDormand,
1: and we are returning on the mic in the basement.